Well, indeed, we've been talking about that undefeated uh, Lord and that undefeated gospel, the fact that it has gone out through generations upon generations and not been stopped. The only time it seems to not uh, actually go forward is when we don't actually deliver it. In fact, for me, I'm constantly reminded of that as I struggle in my own journey to continue to develop relationships and invite people to church. In fact, this week was one of those moments where I was like, man, I'm preaching about this. I got to be able to do this and just kind of rethinking about things. Because um, in my in my area right now where I'm living down in Timiskau Valley and, and Sycamore uh, Creek, they've got all of these... Um, all these slurry coats going in. Anybody else got slurry coats being laid out? And so there's these slurry coats going in. What was weird for me was not that, hey, we weren't supposed to drive on the street at a certain time. That was pretty common. But for, for our street, you started driving down, you'd see the signs, don't park, don't drive, don't park, don't park, don't park. And you get to my lawn and it had no sign. And we were like, does that mean we can park and our next door neighbor can't park? And so we were looking at this conversation and the morning it was supposed to happen, my next door neighbor went out and started talking to my neighbor across the street. He had one of his cars parked out in front of his house. And so I'm like, I got to figure out what they, what they know. And so I went across the street and also kind of with a hope to engage with my neighbor across the street. He's my grumpy neighbor. You got a grumpy neighbor? Everybody's got a grumpy neighbor, right? If you don't have a grumpy neighbor, you're probably the grumpy neighbor. Um, just, just FYI. And uh, so we go over to the, I go over just to have a conversation with him and, and see if I can't get somewhere. And we're talking about how, yeah, it ends here and we can, we don't have to worry about it, but they had to move their car and all this stuff. And I'm hoping, oh, let's, let's get around and maybe we can invite him to church or invite him to Easter. He's got some things going on in his life. And, and so we started talking a little bit about church. My neighbor brought up his church. I brought up my church. He brought up his, his fishing. And so it was kind of, that's his church. And as we were kind of going through stuff, you know, he brought up his do- parents and I brought up my parents and we brought up all of our kids and he brought up his dog because he didn't have kids. And I brought up how my kids are crazy. He brought up how his dog hates kids and eats kids. In other words, I got the uh, stop talking about this conversation. I went, okay, at this point, I'm like, there's no entrance here. I'm not going to find a way in just to force, hey, come to Easter. Uh, and so I, I did what I do best and went back in my house, chickened out. And so I feel really awful about that because when I come to this message, I'm thinking, man, I should know better, right? Because I understand there's not a lot at stake here in America, when it comes to inviting somebody to Easter, when it comes to inviting somebody to know Jesus Christ, there's not a lot of danger going on. Not unlike people who are living in Afghanistan. This is an Afghani man, and he, um, and he likely, if he's a Christian, has con- he has to have converted from Islam. In fact, when Open Doors examines the persecution levels of these churches, of these places, Afghanistan is, is up in the top 10. In fact, I believe it's in the top five. And when you go into these areas, they say all Afghan Christians are, are converts from Islam and are not able to live their faith openly. They're not allowed to talk about it. They're not allowed to bring it out. So very often there's only one possible outcome for exposed and caught Christians. They will be killed, period. Because when the second you expose yourself, the family has a great shame. And the family's call to, to end the shame of their family. They actually call you crazy, that you should not have actually uh, given your life to something other than Islam. They'll put you in a psychiatric hospital. They'll shame the family. And the family has to basically end their shame. And this isn't just a situation with Islam in many countries that Islam is found. This is an issue with secularism because here in North Korea is number one in the persecution 
They, they will clearly not just kill you as a Christian. Their primary way of controlling this is, one, they preach about it and all their propaganda that you shouldn't be a Christian. It's a bad thing. You need to worship the, uh, the leader and all that kind of stuff. But second is that if they find out you're a Christian, even if you breathe it, not only are you locked away in some work camp or killed on the spot, so is your family. So even if your family doesn't agree with you, they wind up there. They have been known to lock away families even if they profess their faith here in the United States. And so they need to change their name. North Korea has been considerably violent against Christians, shutting down and closing down families and, and, play, and free speech in this area. One of the groups that's surprising to you just doesn't in secularism, it's not just in Islam, it's rising in Hinduism in India, particularly a capitalist country that's, that's developed and grown. And, and one of our allies actually has a radical Hindu nationalist group that's grown over the last few years to raise it to number 10 spot. India has continued to develop a hatred towards Christianity, though Christianity has been in India since 200 AD. And we know that Christianity has been something that's been influential in bringing all kinds of good to their country. But they are claiming that if you are Indian, then you are Hindu. And they are not only burning down churches and mosques, they're just killing Christians, kicking them out of their areas. And they just are pushing up um, the intensity while the government's looking the other direction. And so when we look at people like this, you have to ask yourself the question, what are we afraid of? Well, what do we got to, to lose? But when I look at this, there's another question that plagues my mind because when you've read church history and when you've examined kind of the eons that have gone on here for Christianity, one of the things that you realize is that back in the 5th, 6th century, back in the 4th century, in these time periods, North Africa was one of the lights of the world. It was one of the places that the information and the intelligentsia of Christianity dwelled in Alexandria of Egypt, in Carthage on the north coast of Africa. And the gospel and the inform- and theology was flowing to inform Rome, to inform all of the northern areas. And North Africa was a bastion for Christian faith. And yet if I was to ask you what faith dwells in North Africa today, the main, the main faith that's there is Islam. And the reason is because the Berbers weren't reached. There was this group of people that were basically ignored because they didn't want to challenge them. And the Berbers were indeed converted by Islam. They turned around, they shut down through the taxation, the persecution, Christianity, where now today the only real church you'll find in North Africa is in Egypt. And it's called the Coptic Church. And they have an interesting history. I'll let you look that up on your own. The question is then, in this kind of persecution, we know in history that the church can vanish to where, where Paul writes the majority of his letters to the churches today is, is an Islamic state called Turkey. And you cannot find the Christian faith free in that place. And yet, here, we have in India, Afghanistan, in all these locations in North Korea. Will the church survive? Is the gospel actually going to be defeated? My answer is no, absolutely not. Because the gospel cannot be defeated because it's attached to the one who's been risen from the dead, namely Jesus Christ. And we're going to find out today is that Jesus can reach even the hardest of hearts, that there is nobody that is beyond his reach. And I would love for you guys to, to focus in on this. As we grab a Bible, they're available under the seats or in your apps or whatever it is. Open up to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 30, because all this persecution talk, all this fear is nothing new. This is old hat for the church. We've been doing this since the beginning. And what we're going to look at here is a book that we call the, the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. And what it is, is it's a, it's a scroll that was written on request of a Roman official 
to a man named Luke. Now, Luke was a physician. We, I call him Dr. Luke, but Dr. Luke wrote this as the 30-year history of what happened in the church. He has a, for, a former volume that's about Jesus' life. We call it the Gospel of Luke, and it's also found now in the Bible. But originally, they were two separate scrolls that were written for this Roman official and for the church to know what had happened in the history of the growth of the church. And so now we've come up to this person who's named Saul. Now, we've met Saul before. Saul found, shows up earlier in the, this book of Acts in this history, and he lived in Jerusalem. He was, a, um, he was likely running one of the uh, Hellenist or Greek-speaking synagogues. And he had confronted a man named Stephen. Stephen had been preaching about Jesus Christ in the synagogues, and he was, and Saul was opposed to this. And so as he was opposing him, he came to the place where he had Stephen arrested, stood before the Sanhedrin, and ultimately stoned to death. He was thrown, rocks were tossed at him, and he had that capital punishment. And Saul received the coats as proof that he was the accuser. And then Saul was given the authority to take from the chief priest to now begin a persecution and basically find and kill Christians wherever they could as outlaws to the Jewish state. And now we pick up on Saul. After the church has spread and the gospels continued, we pick up back with Saul in Jerusalem. Verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting here is Damascus is a, is a fair distance away. It's up above Galilee. It's, it's north. Here, here's a good map for you. You got the Mediterranean Sea on the left. Far down to the bottom is Judea or, and Jerusalem. And so he's going to travel likely by foot. Maybe he was on a donkey. Maybe he was on a horse. We're, in, we're not quite clear in that, but it looks like he was on foot. He would have traveled north all the way past Galilee to that very kind of center place where that number two is in Damascus. Damascus is an interesting city. It sits on the border between the Roman Empire and what was called the Nabataean Kingdom. And in Arabia was the Nabataean Kingdom, and it was not owned or ruled by, um, by either empire, the Parthians, or the empire of Rome. And so it was kind of a no-man's land. And the Parthians were Rome's greatest threat and fear. And so constantly this area of Syria and, and that place of Arabia was, was going back and forth with war and battle. And so if you were a Christian, you were trying to flee Jerusalem, hey, Damascus is a great place because it's just on the border. You can jump away from Rome. You can go out into the Nabataean Empire, which was a little kinder probably, and you jump back in. And so it was a strategic location. And Saul knew this was a crossroads. So he likely was approaching the area because he knew there was probably a large group of Christians who had run off to there. He was going to arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem, and have them executed. And so this is Saul's journey as he's traveling north. And on that journey, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will see, or you will be told what you are to do. Now, this is interesting because so many, so many pastors, we all kind of love to add stuff to this text because this is just an amazing moment in which we're imagining like, you know, Saul riding along on his horse and then suddenly he gets knocked off his horse or his donkey or however you want to say that word. And so the, um, there's all kinds of jokes that fall into that statement. And I'm not going to go there. You thought it. Uh, so anyway... Saul is actually probably walking. And when it says he, was, he had fallen, the word is to fall on your knees, to fall forward. 
So it's very likely he's in this position, kind of with the light shining in his face, sort of like me right now, and it's just kind of hitting him. It's so bright that it's the noonday, and yet this is even brighter. Now the men around him are watching this. As he sees this, and he's hearing from Jesus, in fact, it'll go on to say that these men who are watching this happen, the men who are traveling with him, stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And as you read later when, when Saul tells this story again, and he will, in fact, this will show up three times in the book of Acts. In, this, in the second time he tells, he says, look, they saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice. And it's very clear what was happening as scholars look at the words that are being used by Dr. Luke is that, These men see the light, they see something going on, they hear a voice, they see Saul interacting, but what they don't understand is what's being said, and likely because it was being spoken in Hebrew. Now, these men may have spoken Aramaic, or they may have spoken Greek, but they would not likely have spoken Hebrew. And so when Jesus appears, he speaks Hebrew to this Saul, who also speaks Hebrew. And in this conversation, suddenly Saul's like, "This, this is God, because God speaks Hebrew. That's how the Jewish people thought. God speaks Hebrew. So if he's speaking to me, this is God. So who are you, Lord, is a proper response. And suddenly he realizes, oh, this is Jesus. He gets up, and now he's blind. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. Now this, this is weird. So what's he going to say? He saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drink. Now imagine you're Saul here for a minute. You get up off the ground and you come to rest Christians to bring them and lock them away in Jerusalem. And you're saying, um, they're going like, what just happened? What just happened? What was that? And he's like, um, what do I say? Jesus happened? Yeah, that's what happened. But he can't say it. What's he going to do? He can't turn these guys. That was Jesus. Like, Saul, you're crazy. No, we're here to arrest people who think that way. What's your problem? And, and so I'm sure Saul just stayed quiet. Saul began to fast. He, you know, these guys are going, something happened. He can't see. This is traumatic. This is crazy. And so they usher him in to town, probably quietly and secretly. Saul probably didn't come into town going, hey, everybody, I'm here. Bring out your Christians. Bring out your Christians. You know, it's nothing like that. He hid, went into a home, hid away so that nobody knew he was there because they didn't want to disturb the city because they had a goal. And yet Saul has been irrevocably changed. Something has occurred in which now he is contemplating, he is struggling, he is wondering, what did I just see? What is really happening? I mean, this was Jesus. Like, did I get some bad hummus or something? Because he can't put these pieces together. And what you're seeing here is a radical conversion. What you're seeing here is what happens when the heart of heart meets God and he enters it and he wakes them up and he meets them in their place. It's ugly. It's difficult to watch people be humbled. But here Saul loses his sight. He's broken. He's humbled. He's not eating. He's not doing anything. And yet God has been doing this for centuries. God isn't just going to do this with Saul. He's going to do this with another man who lived in a town Uh, just in Europe and uh, in the European areas down in Italy. And this man was a powerful rhetorician. He'd been trained in rhetoric. He knew rhetoric. He, He was considered one of the best orators of his time period. And yet he believed in this strange quasi Christian, new agey, Gnostic sect where you got to talk about being your own God and the God of Manny and all these different things. And he was very good at proclaiming this stuff, even when he began to not believe it. 
His mother, who is a Christian, had been praying for him all of his life, never stopped praying for him, never ceased desiring this man to become a Christian. And it was only when he engaged with an old bishop, a monk, that he began to talk to, that he began to find his equal in intelligence. Eventually, he walked away from that many kind of religion, Manichaeanism, it was called, and he begins to wrestle with the questions and the conversations he's having with this bishop until one day he's, he's walking along in his back porch area with a garden, and he's contemplating his life, and he realizes, you know, he's addicted to sex. He's given his life to so many horrible things, but he's not so sure he wants to give his life to Jesus and, and all of this, and suddenly he hears some children playing in the background. But they're playing a game he's never heard of. He doesn't even know why they would be saying it, but they're yelling, take up and read, take up and read. And it comes to the realization that God was talking to him. And he grabs a Bible, he flops it open. The first thing it comes to is the just shall live by faith. And this man who is this rhetorician begins to proclaim the Christian faith in such great and strong ways. We consider him the greatest theologian the church has ever seen. His name, we would know him as St. Augustine. God took a man who was opposed and flipped him to somebody who was a proponent. It would be in a car that another man, another intellect, a vast intellect, he was working at Oxford, he was studying all of the ancient English, mourning with his friend over the fact there was no mythology for the English anymore. And as he was studying all of these different things in philosophy and all these pieces, he was a staunch atheist, had all this hurt in his heart over his history. And it was his conversations with his equal, another man who was also actually a very smart Oxford critical thinker named J.R.R. Tolkien. And when he talked to Tolkien, he met his equal, and C.S. Lewis couldn't help but begin to move towards Christianity to where he is the author that so many of us enjoy reading today. When Lee Strobel set out to disprove Christianity using his power of journalism that he'd used to the Chicago Tribune, he came converted and now uses that very thing to proclaim the gospel all over as he results in evidence showing his journalistic interests and even how it works in the faith. God flips the hardest of hearts. He's doing it today. He's done it throughout church history. And so I just want you guys to understand one thing. Don't give up on the hard-hearted people in your life. Maybe you thought you could write off that uncle that's angry and sitting at that, in, at that uh, Easter brunch or whatever, telling you why all of you are idiots for going to church in the morning. Or maybe it's that grumpy neighbor, or maybe it's that principal who's told you, I don't want to hear about your Christianity again, just preach, or just teach the curriculum. Maybe it's, that, um, maybe it's that boss who's sick and tired of you sharing about Jesus, inviting him to church, and you don't want to hear it anymore. Maybe you think, man, there's just no way to reach these people. Well, I'm telling you, Jesus isn't done with anybody. And what you need to do is realize that no one is beyond reach and don't think that they are. Instead, what we should be doing is trusting that God can reach into the people and speak to them in the way that they need to meet him. They need to hear him. I think Saul need to be knocked down off his knees, or on his knees, off his horse, whatever it was, to look up at God and say, what in the world is happening? He needed to hear the Hebrew spoken to him, but really he needed something else. He needed a little bit more evidence. And even though we may know people who need to hear this, they're going to need you. They're going to need me to have something a little bit more than just our prayers. In fact, this is where we go to next as we continue on. This man named Ananias has asked or a great request as well. Beginning in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. 
And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And what we have here is certainly a request by Jesus to his disciple to go meet the greatest persecutor the church had ever known at this time. Now, I find this fascinating, and it should speak to us who live in the United States today, because we live in an amazing country. We live in some of the greatest comfort. I mean, you guys have chairs they would relish in other countries. You're sitting in them right now. We have music, and we have the opportunities that nobody has. We have the chance to preach the gospel as someone only hope to have. We have so much opportunity for our children to be in sports and get great educations and have a better life than we have, and we have those hopes and dreams. That's good. I'm not saying that's bad, but here's the thing. Jesus cares less about that being great than about other people's eternal life. You say, what? Yeah, look. What does he tell this man to do? Ah, I love you, Ananias. I know you're a good guy. Boom, boom. I know you got all this stuff going for you. You live in Damascus. You're alive. You're safe. You're praying with me. Now get up and go do something dangerous. Go join the adventure. Go down this street called Straight. Go knock on a house of Judas and ask for the most evil man you can imagine in your mind. I want you to go talk to him. You can imagine Ananias has no clue what's happened to Saul. He doesn't even realize Saul's in town. But suddenly now he does. I don't think Ananias was like, sure, Jesus, because this is his response. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Um, no, I don't want to do this. And what Jesus is calling this man to be is to be courageous. He's calling Ananias to rise up and be a man of bravery and risk-taking. Too often we get so comfortable in our faith. We think, ah, God wouldn't want me to go talk to somebody I'm uncomfortable with. God wouldn't want me to lose my job over something. God wouldn't want me to do that. He wants to bless me. No, he wants your life to be used to bring others eternal life. He wants you to be willing to sacrifice the goods that you have so they could have something greater, just as Jesus sacrificed his life so that we could have life. And this is the call of the adventure of following Jesus. It's fraught with danger. It's fraught with difficulty. It's calling us to live beyond ourselves, to go down the streets called straight, to knock on the door of Judas, to ask for somebody that otherwise we would never, ever want to talk to, the hard-hearted and those who would have nothing to do with it. But Ananias, he takes up the deal only because I believe Jesus gives him some info. He says, hey, look, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. This is so interesting. To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the different children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I love this. Two things. He says, number one, I've got a vision for him. And number two, he's going to suffer a lot. So if you really want him to be punished, Go talk to him. That's what I read, right? That persecutor is going to have a lot of problems. Just don't worry about it. Well, Ananias, he kind of looks at this and he realizes, man, he's calling me to do something. This is risky. This is something that that I should be doing. I don't know. Should I do it? Should I go? 
And the bottom line is, if you and I are going to be somebody who is remembered, you're going to be the one who, that name, that somebody asks you, who brought you to Christ? And you're going to be able to say that it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage to step out and do that. Because you know who's not written about in this? The disciple named Ed. This is a true story. See, earlier that day, Jesus had appeared to Ed. Ed was out there threshing some wheat in the field, and he's throwing it up in the air and making sure everything's good. And God goes, Ed! And he's like, whoa, Jesus! He's like, Ed, Jesus! Ed, yeah, I've got something for you to do, Ed. Sure, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. I love you, Jesus. This is awesome. He says, I want you to go down this street straight to this house of Judas, knock on the door, and ask for this guy, Saul of Tarsus. And Ed goes, that Saul of Tarsus? Yes, Ed. No. Jesus says, what do you mean, no? No, that guy's dangerous. I'm not going to do that. No, listen. I'll make him suffer a lot. I've got a great vision for him. He's got a lot to do for me. Go down there, talk to him. You know, Jesus, thanks for dying for me and all, so I'm going to take this one for the team and just say no. The reason that I know that didn't happen is it's not written in here because, you know, he didn't do it. You know Ananias because Ananias obeyed. You know Ananias' name because he was one who walked with Jesus. Obviously, I'm being apocryphal, but the point is clear. Because you want to be remembered. You want to be the one who's able to reach out and, and, and see that hard-hearted person come to know Jesus. It's because we were willing to take the risk. We're willing to go out. And so Ananias was willing, stepped out on that street called Straight, went down that block, found the house of Judas, and he knocked on that door. Can you imagine how this went as the door creaked open? Who are you? Uh, my name's Ananias. Hi. <laughs> I know you, Ananias. What do you want? Um, I want to talk to Saul. Saul? What Saul? We have no Saul in here. Yeah, I know Saul's staying with you, Judas. Can I come in and talk to him? Uh, hold on. Door shuts. Come. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Come in. He steps inside, and all these guys are standing around going, what do you want to see Saul for? See, they don't know about Jesus. They don't know about this stuff. They're just going, Saul's in the other room. He's blind. Do we really want to know anybody, let anybody know Saul is here? What's going on? He's like, I'm just supposed to talk to Saul like God told me to. Um, can I go? To? Fine. He goes in there, and he leans over to Saul, and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Silence. Saul's blind, sitting there. This is the moment. At this moment, he's either going to go, oh, thank you, or he's going to go, I got one! Christian, right here, grab him. We're going to get all your friends, buddy. I may be blind, but I'm not stupid. Why not? It's at this moment Saul will yield to the vision that he's seen and release himself to the reality that he's experienced or he will continue in his persecutions and have his first fruit of Damascus. This is a risk for Ananias. Even if Jesus tells you to go do it, and yet what happens instead is that immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, he regained his sight, he rose and was baptized, going to go make this public to people around me, and taking food, he was strengthened, and for some days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. 
See, he took the risk. He, he went there to the house. He went through it all. Guys, all I'm asking us to do is take a few of these invitations on our seats to walk up to some people and say, hey, I would love to invite you to church. But the second you take that step, guaranteed you step into the Miguel's Jr. to do that or you go to work to do that or wherever you go, there's this thing that happens and your hand starts to do this. Hi. It happens to me. But I want to let you know what's going on. You see, your flesh, the devil, and this world is designed to keep you from obeying God. It does not want you to do what God calls you to do. And so no wonder that there's these temptations that show up for lust. And you're like, oh, it's so pretty. I want it. And he's like, everything in you is like drawing you to do it. Everything wants you to act. When you want to tell that story and you want to gossip, you're like trying to hold your mouth back. You're like, this is such a good story. Okay, I just got to tell you. When you're getting angry, it's boiling in you to act, to do something. You're just like, ah, that guy needs to stop and go. Come on, man. He turned the stop to slow. I know this is a construction zone. Go, go. Okay, that's just me. So, but the point is clear. When the temptation comes, we think of temptation moving us to act and to disobey God and sin. But did you know there's a second kind of temptation? It's the temptation to tell you to stop. Jesus told you to give away the gospel. And suddenly what happens is you feel everything in you. And you're like, I don't really want to do this right now. I mean, what if they yell at me? What, uh, what if they ask me a question I don't know? You know, he's really busy. And this is kind of something that will bother him. So I don't really. <laughs> it's just temptation. It's temptation to not act. So we disobey God. And when we understand that what you're in is a spiritual battle at that moment, it changes what the shake is. It changes what the feelings are. It makes you realize that this is a life and death battle for somebody's soul. And that we need to continue forward. We need to be praying for them. How do we go about this? Yeah, pray like crazy. Ananias was in a relationship with God, praying, asking God, and talking to God. And God showed up. Jesus came and said, this is what I want you to do. God was ready to move and respond to him. We need to be praying for these hard-hearted people that God would reach them and use us if that's what he's calling us to do. But second, you need to have a vision for these people. Did you ever think that maybe your next-door neighbor... That, that somebody in their home, though they don't believe in Jesus, might actually be a pastor just waiting to find his Lord? What if that guy in the cubicle next to you is actually just a future global missionary who's going to go somewhere and bring a message to a people that never heard about Jesus before? What if there's somebody that's living down your block or around the corner, or maybe it's your uncle sitting across from you at Easter, who is actually the next Billy Graham and you didn't even realize it? Why don't we have that kind of vision for our neighbors and friends? Because you know what? That's exactly who Saul was. Here is a man who has gone from rebel to proclaimer, here is a man who will eventually be known as the Apostle Paul, the greatest church planter and the author of multiple books of the New Testament. And he doesn't believe. And Ananias is the name that we remember who stepped in and said, Brother Saul, I'm here to bring you into the church. What an opportunity we have. What an opportunity. And it's because you know what? When we see this kind of stuff happen, when we see God use these kind of people, opponents make great witnesses, don't they? I mean, you guys remember the Verizon guy? Can you hear me now? 
Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? No, because I'm using Sprint. <laughs> you know, it's this new thing, right? The guy from Verizon is now the Sprint guy. And it's like, everybody's like, oh man, Verizon must stink because the Verizon guy went to Sprint. Yeah, because he's getting paid more. He converted for money. They just, cheat. they just took Jesus' playbook. You see, Jesus actually showed up, showed that he was alive. And here is Saul going like, uh, I was wrong. And what we find out is that he was clearly wrong. He dives right in, verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. They're looking at each other going, was this the guy supposed to arrest us, take people down and throw them in jail? I mean, what happened here? That Saul increased all the more in strength, verse 22 says, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. If you're going to underline something, I want you to underline, increased all the more in strength. You know, underline that because it's critical to the life of Saul. See, Saul shows up in the synagogue and everybody's gathered together. And you know what's funny? Is nobody knows what's happened to Saul probably probably kind of kept under wraps. They all sit down finally at that day in the synagogue and Saul's sitting there and he's like, that's Saul, that's Saul. It's like, I'm so glad all these Christians are here today. We'll take care of this mess. <laughs> and he gets up. I have something to tell all of you. And they're ready to just grab the Christian that's sitting next to them and go like, here's one, take him. I really don't like this guy. Take him now, you know, whatever. And Saul's like, <clears throat> you all know why I'm here, but I'm actually here to tell you, Jesus is the Messiah for real. He's the son of God. What? I like the dog that looks at you weird. What's going on? This is not what we expected. And suddenly this whole conversation begins. And I believe what he used was his story. He told how Jesus had met him on the road. And the reason I know this and I believe this is because this is how Paul opens up all of his conversations. Two more times he will tell this story. And all every time he is using it as the evidence that Jesus Christ is alive. This is still a sticking problem. If you're not a Christian, and you're here wondering how in the world do we believe this kind of stuff? You need to deal with Saul. Saul is a historical person. We know he existed. We know he converted. He says so in his own words, in his own writings. He is attested to here in Luke. And yes, he flipped from being the great persecutor to the great church planter. And you know what? The, the, the secular people, they got to go. They're like, um, um, he went crazy. You know, he had an epileptic seizure and he saw Jesus and that made him crazy from that point on. That's one of the arguments, except for the fact that other people saw what was going on and that he was clearly not crazy. He wrote some of the greatest moral tomes that we have in our world. All right, well, and, and they've thrown that out, basically. They've thrown out hallucination. They've thrown out these kind of things. They've kind of landed on, well, you know what? He was so against Christianity, he converted. Patty Hearst did it. Why not Paul? And that's what they say. They say this poor woman who was tortured and brainwashed by her abductors became for her abductors. And so this is the same thing for Saul. So against it, so angry, boom, he flipped. No, the only answer here in attachment to all the other evidence is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and you have to deal with it. And Saul proclaimed, I saw Jesus alive. And he would proclaim it in synagogue after synagogue after synagogue after synagogue to see people transform person after person after person after person. Because God loves to bring these people. If you're a brand new Christian, I'm going to tell you, don't run away from your friends. Bring the message of what Jesus did in your life to them. Share it with them. Watch what God begins to do. 
Oh, you're going to get confronted. You're going to get questions. Trust me. When I did this with my friends, I went straight to them and I got every question in the book. I got how in the world do you get penguins on an ark all the way to like, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And that's a range of questions. You got to know which ones are good ones, which ones are bad ones, which ones you answer, which ones are important, which ones aren't. But that happens as you engage and don't fear the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He will empower you with the ability to speak. Don't answer with this answer though. I don't know, I just have faith. That just doesn't work. This culture, it needs us to show why we believe what we believe. And maybe you're sitting there going, I don't know how to answer those questions. Well, neither did Saul apparently because he grew in strength, increased all the more in strength. It's not in physical strength. He's like in there going like, I'm going to be a weightlifter for Jesus. No, he grew in the knowledge of how to bring Jesus and bring the arguments to bear of showing that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and that he was the Messiah. He grew in strength of his arguments. Guys, you have lots of opportunities to do that here at Olive Branch. You can do that in starting point. If you don't know why you believe what you believe, get into starting point and begin to understand the basics. You want to grow more? Hey, we'll just flip. I'll take a small group upstairs, second service, and I'll preach up there. We'll just have Carl come down here and teach apologetics because you can grow in those arguments. You can understand how to use them. Now, don't be a jerk with your apologetics, but stand firm. And our apologetics class upstairs happens every second service and walks over these various kinds of arguments and conversations. It's an awesome opportunity for you to continue to grow. And as you do, don't be shocked when Jesus uses you as his proponent. Then he actually begins to motivate and change other people around you. You see, this is what happens with Saul. It goes on to say, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, what's this, when many days? That's actually, just mark it in your Bible, three years. Back in Galatians, he says he went off into Arabia, preached the gospel there for three years, then went back to Damascus, and this event happens. You can also find um, this event in 2 Corinthians 11. And so he says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates in day by night, or day and night, in order to kill him. But his disciples, notice they're his disciples now, that means a lot of days have passed by, took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And so he goes on to Jerusalem. When he came to Jerusalem, I'll just summarize this one. He tries to get connected with the church. They still don't believe he's okay. They're still questioning. And Barnabas comes in and says, no, no, no. He saw the Lord on the road. Notice there's his testimony. And, they, and he spoke to them and, and and he preached boldly the name of Jesus. So he is allowed into the church. He's pulled in by the community. And as this begins to develop, then he does something very interesting. He went out in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. This is the Greek-speaking Jewish men and women that he originally was a rabbi for. That he originally stood in defense with Stephen. He now goes to those very people who used to listen to him to actually proclaim Jesus. When they heard they were seeking to kill him, and when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off home to Tarsus. And so we meet Saul. But here's the thing. Saul was used in all of his passion and all of his glory to reach people that he had tried to reach before. Don't be surprised if the people you're like end up being the people that you oftentimes connect the best with in reaching. For me... I'm a nerd. I'm okay saying that. I grew up in all the gate classes and honors courses and all that stuff. 
And I have a tendency when I'm out talking to people about Jesus, not to run into anybody, any of the basic people. I always run into that guy who's the philosopher. You know what I'm saying? The guy's like throws every question at you. Well, what about the multiverse? And how do we know the fine tuning argument actually happens? What is this anthropic principle? And you know, all that kind of weird stuff. And you're like, what? Yeah, I meet that guy randomly. I have been, back when Ontario Mills was like something, you remember that time period? Um, we would go there doing evangelism with my friends and we would show up and I'd walk in a line, we'd pick random people and literally I'd walk up to some guy and introduce him, ask him Jesus, he'd try to nail me with every philosophical question he could think of from the problem of evil to evolution and everything else. I'm going like, how do I meet you people? But I have a tendency to connect with those people and be able to walk in a journey with them. Don't underestimate that you have a background that helps you connect with business people or, or other moms or other, other family members or whatever God has put in your life he will use to reach others. The second thing is he'll use your passions. Don't be surprised that if your love for music becomes something that empowers you to reach other people who love music, to proclaim his glory, that if you're a relational person, that he helps you build relationships so that those relationships begin to grow and come to a place of Christ, that you're a business person, you're passionate about it, that those very, that very knowledge and those very pieces become something that is powerful for others to hear. God will use your passions. Let me just give you a simple example. Saul wanted to crush the church and he became the one who advanced the church with the same passion. Rome existed for one purpose, to crush the barbarians to destroy them and expand their empire. And when it converted to Christianity, it became the movement that evangelized the barbarians and brought about a a Christian Europe. The Vikings, man, they were about one thing, sailing ships and breaking stuff. That's what they loved to do. And they sailed down and broke lots of churches until they were converted. And then they taught all of Europe how to sail. And the gospel went into Africa and sailed across to North America and the world changed. God will use the passions of even nations that when they come to know him for the glory of his gospel. No. No, the gospel will not be defeated by intense persecution because Jesus is alive. and He'll flip the opposers to to promoters. And we want to celebrate that because I want you guys today to do something different. We're going to start a song. We're going to sing Oceans. And it's a song that talks about really that idea of stepping out on the waters as Peter did. And then realize you're going to keep your eyes on Jesus because you're stepping into something you never stepped into before. You're going somewhere where you've never gone before. You're going to take a step out in faith, trusting in Jesus and where he's leading you. What I'm asking you is that's what we're going to be praying on behalf of those hard-hearted around us. Maybe there's a name that's been in your mind. There's somebody that's been on your heart. What I want you to do is take that name and I want you to step out and do something a little different, a little uncomfortable maybe for you, especially if you're introverted. And that is to bring that name in your heart and your mind forward here. We took out the front row to give you an opportunity to kneel. And during this song to pray and lift these people before our Lord. To begin to ask him to do one of two things or do all kinds of things. First, to ask him that he would reveal himself to them in the way that they need it. Whether that's through an intelligent philosopher, whether that's through just a businessman or whatever it is, that God would reveal himself in the way that they need it. Number two, that he would give us the boldness to step out and continue to invite them to know him. And third, that we would have a vision for them. A vision that comes from Jesus. And maybe he'll meet one of you down here. Maybe Jesus will literally show himself to you and he'll tell you, listen, I want you to go down the street called Straight. 
I want you to knock on a door of a man named Judas. I want you to ask for that hard-hearted person because I love him and I want him to know me. And maybe today is the day as you're praying that God will reveal them, himself to them. So I ask you as we sing this song to come kneel, to bring that prayer. And, and when you're done praying, just to stay and let the song be a prayer of how God leads you deeper and further in following after him. So we're going to sing. So stand, let's do this together.